When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the podcast that follows the money behind the beautiful game. I'm Kevin Day and... uh, Somewhere over there is uh, the Professor of Football Finance at Liverpool University, Kieran Maguire, who managed to upset some Luton Town fans last week, and this week upset fashion lovers with uh, a shirt that I can only describe as Larry, that you that you put up on the, the internet. I, I thought it was making a very subtle political statement. It was uh, red skulls on a, on a blue background. Yes, but you are colour blind, aren't you? I, I am. So to me, it just looked pretty. But uh, <laughs> but I I was I didn't realise. I, I thought I was on a radio show, but it turned out that it was an American TV show. So there were two guys in shirts and ties, looking very businesslike, and me looking. I've just been thrown out of tramps with Prince Andrew, which I wouldn't be surprised to learn has happened. <laughs> just by the by, Freddie Flintoff once told me that he got thrown out of Bougies for drinking champagne out of Steve Harmison's trainer. <laughs> So I, I said, why did they throw you out for doing that for anyway? No trainers. <laughs> um, Brilliant. I know. Uh, yeah, so a lot of people, Kieran, the fact that they're colourblind would be the most interesting thing about them. With you, it's by far the least interesting thing in your surprisingly colourful life. It's ironic that the, the good Lord saw fit to make you colourblind, but give you just colour in everyday life. I, I, I'm the world dullest, world's dullest man. Teetotal... Non-drug taking, non-gambling, yeah, yeah. non-smoking uh, accountant oh, yeah. who likes spreadsheets. I think there's a I think there's a Russian girl in a Barcelona shirt who might dispute <laughs> that, Kieran. Basically, uh, now it's it's Monday, so it's um it's questions. I'm a bit fuzzy. Today. It was my birthday yesterday, Kieran. We, we managed to find ways to celebrate even in lockdown. But it, I know it's Monday. And I know it's questions. But first of all, there are two rather big stories that I think we need to to mention. First of all, the Premier League met on Friday to discuss the resumption of football. Uh, the news is positive, but your club, Brighton, are not happy about one particular aspect of the possible resumption, are they? Um, that, that's right. There's uh, there's two potential outcomes. Um, first of all, we just call the, call the whole thing off, as has happened in Belgium, Netherlands, France, uh, and the, low, the three lowest leagues in Scotland. Um, and if that is the case, where do, where does that leave us in terms of promotion and relegation? Um, and there has been talk about no relegation this season and promoting three teams from the championship and three teams from League One and three teams from League Two, which I'm not quite sure where that leaves League Two in 2020-21. 
Um, and, and presumably there'll be some form of advanced relegation taking place next season as well. Mm. Um, that, uh, that, that has only really got one big supporter, and that one big supporter is my understanding is to be West Ham. Right. Um, because That's they... Amazes me. <laughs> yes, they are presently not in the bottom three, having been recently in the bottom three. Um, so that's that. But they, there is uh, there is certainly enthusiasm uh, for all from all of the bottom six clubs to have this no relegation uh, concept, uh, which you can understand it from the club's point of view. Uh, as as a fan, even as a fan of a club that could potentially go down, I'd, I'd rather we just play. 38 games and stay up or go down on our own merit that yeah that's that's what I signed up for at the start of the season yeah. um the argument which is being put forward by the clubs and again you, you've got to have some sympathy here is that Villa have 10 games left of which six are at home yeah um and uh Brighton have nine games left of which five are at home so they are opposed to the alternative which is to play matches behind closed doors but to play them at neutral venues. Yeah. This this would this would be for safety reasons to keep because football fans being football fans will try and find a way to get into the grounds if they know the game is at their traditional ground presumably. That's 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 certainly a, a contributory factor um and I think the Premier League are anxious not to give away where the matches are taking place in advance. Because their fear is, let's say that Liverpool could potentially win the game, win the Premier League in the third week of coming back from lockdown, and the match is taking place at Villa Park. Yeah. Then there's a chance of you know five thousand Liverpool fans congregating outside Villa Park. Yeah. Um. So you know there there are lots of complications involved. So certainly, um, having neutral venues is is to deal with the fans will be one one of the issues. Um. The other is that effectively we're going to have to sanitise these grounds and there'll be lots of testing taking place so it makes sense to have fewer in which the the football is taking place because if you've got two or three matches taking place at Villa Park over a weekend that it's far less work for the people who are doing the the uh, the testing tracing and general sort of upkeep of the stadia and also some of the grounds simply aren't fit for to, for this type of activity uh, yeah, the more modern grounds would be more appropriate because they they tend to have more hygienic regimes anyway. So, so presumably, then, if you pick ten neutral grounds, it means you can p- get the league finished quicker as well because you're playing maybe two or three games a day there rather than one game a week. But, but Brighton's argument and Villa's argument is that they will be adversely affected by missing out on on home games, even though there's no crowd. That, that's right. Um, and, and the argument goes, and if you talk to footballers, you, know, you, you do they do claim this to be the case, is that every ground is slightly different. You know, it's just from the knowledge of the training, you know, the knowledge of the, the, the changing rooms. It's, they've got different dimensions. But also, if you are a home player, um, you've got sort of a, a second sight. You, you know that the, the third advertising hoarding on the right is... That that lines up with the penalty box. So when you're pinging <laughs> balls around, you've, you're aiming for that as much as you're aiming for the player. Um, so, you know, it, it seems Is that, really, yeah, yeah. They that, are they they well, they know their stadia very well. Yeah, they they practice drills and routines in them. Well, that would explain then why Damien Delaney, for example, kept 
aimlessly hoofing the ball out. He just he was aiming for the advertising hoarding, just kept overshooting basically. Oh, well, that's interesting. So, um, do you buy into that? Do you, I mean, as a Brighton fan, would it worry you? Because then, presumably, the, the adverse or the other side of that, of course, is that you travel to Anfield or Old Trafford or, or wherever it is, and you you haven't got that effect. You know, you haven't got the massive home crowd. Have you? Yeah. So, it, 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 there is an element of swings and roundabouts. I, th- I think the argument put forward by our chief executive is that we've got five home games left of which four are against Manchester United, Manchester City, Arsenal and Liverpool. Now, yeah. it, uh, as an away fan, you're not expecting to pick up anything from there. At home, you feel you've got a slight more of a chance. So yeah. by taking away the, the home advantage from a club who has got you know, more home games than away games, they, they are potentially slightly disadvantaged. It's likely to be that you know the the last place for relegation is going to be going to very tight. It's going to be a very marginal decision, and I think any minuscule advantage that you have to sacrifice is is one that the clubs don't want to sacrifice. Ultimately, it's a decision which has got to be made by the clubs. So, so my understanding is that we've got thirteen clubs who are happy to play in neutral venues. We've got six who are not. And then we've got Spurs who are reluctant to make a decision. And, and that's actually quite critical because for for this to go ahead, uh, the Premier League owners, the Premier League chairman have got to make a final decision and you need a two-thirds majority. So, well, well two-thirds is, is 14 clubs. So at present, right. we've got Spurs effectively sitting as kingmaker. There's been no final decision made, and I think part of the reason for that is that the football clubs and the Premier League are waiting for the government to give some form of indication as to how we're coming out of lockdown. And I think that decision is scheduled for Thursday, and then there's another Premier League meeting on Friday. Well, also there's the issue of testing, because I understand the Premier League are reluctant to allow, I think it's up to 40,000 tests will be needed for for Premier League players, coaches, etc., when or if the government haven't hit their own target, if there are still vulnerable people waiting for tests, the Premier League have quite rightly said it wouldn't be right for the Premier League to buy privately, if you like, these tests, which is which is to their credit, isn't it? Yes, and I think that they've done the right thing from from a moral and ethical point of view. Also, from a public public relations perspective, you can imagine yeah. the, the the reaction. Um, in in terms of buying tests, I think it has been indicated that the test would be bought from overseas, so therefore there would be no way that they could be accused of taking uh, resources away from I frontline see. services. Right. Um, now, will will players be able to opt out of this? If players, for example, are living with old... I know Sergio Aguero is is rather concerned because he has his elderly in-laws living. Will they be able to say, look, I don't think I can safely play football and then go back home? Or will they be in hotels? Will they, will they be exiled? Well, I think effectively the players would have to go into some form of communal lockdown... Um, but also, how, you, can't, you couldn't expect them to return to home if they do have elderly relatives or if they, they do have people who are high risk um, at home because you've just been on a football pitch with 21 other guys plus yeah. substitutes plus, plus yeah. referees and so on. Um, I, I think it would be a, a dangerous um, action to take. Uh, I think the other people we need to take into consideration here, if we're going to go down the non-relegation route, is the broadcasters. Because we know that Liverpool have won the Premier League this season. That's the the least important decision that has to be made. Liverpool are going to win it one way or the other. 
Yeah, it's still going to be an aster- it's going to be the Asterisk Premier League. That's the unfortunate thing, isn't it? In years to come, it will be Liverpool won the Asterisk Premier League. But yes, yeah. you're, you're right. Um, but it, it, so so what what's in it for Sky and BT? Well, yes, it will be good for them to have something to broadcast. But in order to get us really emotionally involved and in making sure that we do tune into the matches, there's got to be something riding on those matches. So if a decision is made to not have relegation. All of those matches involving you know, Villa, Brighton, Bournemouth, Norwich, you know, West Ham and so on, um, which presently you know, are, are, are quite exciting. Relegation is just as exciting as promotion, as, as qualifying for the Champions League and so on. All of a sudden, you've got a, a large number of matches, which now, what, what is the purpose of them? Well, that's, that's the worst of both worlds. I mean, if one of the options is that we carry on the Premier League but with no relegation, then what's the point? Let's let's just have the two games that it takes for Liverpool to get six points or whatever it is to win the title. What <clears throat> I generally don't understand why why we would continue the league with all the security safety risks that entails for no purpose. And it's not you know, just to decide the Europa League place. That, that seems ludicrous. Well, there's that, but there's also they do the, the Premier League does have a contractual obligation to the broadcasters to deliver a certain number of matches. So if, if we did call it off after two or three weeks, you know, presently there is chalk of, I think it's £768 million that potentially might have to go back to the broadcasters from right. those oh, 20 okay. clubs. So you know, money, sadly, comes into it. And this is a show about money, as we know. Yeah, yeah let's not say sadly on this podcast, Kieran. Let's save that conversation for when the pubs are open again. I mean, so bloody money, football ruining it. But just, just for this 40 minutes, let's, let's, let's give money the credit it's due. Um, it, what then if if the EFL decides to continue, and Leeds and West Brom, for example, finish first and second in and would expect promotion? If if the Premier League go for the no relegation, are, are we then looking at a twenty two team Premier League then next season? Yeah, and it could could be the top three. They might decide, or they might decide to that Leeds and West Brom go up now, and we'll they'll have a very quick playoff between the next four teams. So it, it's going to kick uh, off le- okay. you know, so legally because you could go down to 11th place um, in, in the championship. And they say, well, actually, we're in a good yeah, chance sure. with a, a playoff. Um, yes, we, we're, we're potentially looking at a 22 or 23 team Premier League next season, which means there's going to be 42 or 44 fixtures. Now, you and I, uh, our, our medical knowledge, I think it's fair to say is limited. Well, I'm a, I'm a fairly good pub doctor, yeah. I, but yes, but no actual qualifications, no. Um, there, there is a chance that uh, some form of lockdown could be could be released and then heightened and released. So we we could be going in waves to sort of manage um, second and third waves of infection. Now, if that is the case, it could be that the government um, increases the, the the safety regime, the health regime. So we're suddenly trying to get 44 fixtures in and there's a potential to lose another six to eight weeks next season, which would make sort of completing the football calendar, which is already fairly full, um, impossible. Right. Well, if you were optimistic about what Kieran said in the last five minutes, don't be too pessimistic about what he just said about a new wave of virus in the winter. I must stress, as I said, we are the only pub scientists. The actual scientists don't know what's going to happen in the winter because it wasn't around last winter. So it, it could all be over in July. You never know. Um, I, one thing that just does just occurred to me, funny enough, and it just shows how your mind forgets things. I mean, we are talking about pre-lockdown and post-lockdown memory, aren't we? 
they would have to continue with VAR, surely, because that's there are issues of fairness there as well, wouldn't there be? You you, you couldn't have even these games played behind, uh, you know, empty stadium would still need VAR because otherwise people are going to say, well, hang on, we've been relegated on a decision that would have been changed had it happened in September or October. Very much so. Um, and, and that's why the initial talks about um, having matches taking place at St. George's Park, which is sort of the, the FA's headquarters yeah. near Burton, um, that, that wouldn't be feasible because you wouldn't be able to right. set up the VAR technology. Um, and that's also why I think initially there, there was suggestion at using some of the, the stadia from the championship. But again, they're not set up for VAR. So it's going to have to be... 10 Premier League grounds. Um, I think they're trying to aim for ones which are not in the in the centre of places, i.e. Yes. make it a little bit more difficult for fans yeah. to access. So therefore, if, if I look at Brighton's ground, you know, we're out of town. It's an absolute pain in the arse to get there yeah. um, through various means of travel. You, know, you have to get the train or the bus. It, it, is, it is sustainable transport, but there are no trains or buses running anyway um, during lockdown. So I think you know, they, they could deal with that particular issue to make it even more difficult. Um, so which 10 grounds they're going to be uh, is, is not, not certain. But I think one of the rules is that if, let's say, that one of them is Anfield, Liverpool would not be able to play there as a neutral fixture. Yeah, OK. Um, now, we, we do have questions to get onto, and they're questions that you all like because there's some quite complicated accounting questions this week. I'm assuming they're interesting because, frankly, uh, Guy, our producer, sent me them. I get two of them. I just stop reading halfway through. I think this Kieran will love this because I'm off to, I've lost the will to live. But there is another big subject this week. Um, one with a surprising outcome, I think, because the USA women's football team, their bid for equal pay, has been dismissed by uh, the US court. They're not uh, they're not being allowed to process it and take this further. They've made a, a class action claim against the US Soccer Federation, haven't they? This I, I took me back a little bit that they're, they're not being allowed to proceed with this. Um, yes, and, all, and also some of the uh, some some of the comments from the judge were a bit surprising. Um, the the U.S. women's national team, and I think we've got to stress that um, the, the the national team in the U.S. is perhaps similar to the England cricket team in that the players get central contracts and they also have contracts with their clubs, which are less lucrative. So it's not like England's male football team where you know, the players are making their money from their club football yeah. and, and they get a bit of a top up. And, and actually, to, you know, to give England players players credit they tend to give an awful lot of that money away to good causes yeah um so th- there was a class action um on the grounds that the the u.s women's team have won you know the the, the women's world cup and they they've done well in the she believes cup um and and they are effectively fifa's number one ranked team on, on a regular basis um they were looking for um a hundred thousand guaranteed for the senior players as part of this class action, as well as um, bonuses for ticket sales and various bits and pieces. Um, and it was rejected by the judge. And, and one of the reasons that he, he said was that if you take a look at the, the total figures, the men's game is generating more revenue than that of the women's from a national association perspective. Right. Really? I, I, my understanding was that women's football in America was way ahead of us in terms of, of crowds and support. But is is that true? Is there, the broadcasting in particular doesn't tend to show women's football games over there? Well, certain, certainly the matches are shown and, and they do get decent audiences. Um, however, I think part of the problem is that 
on the global stage, if you take a look at the amount of money going into the, the FIFA World Cup men's team, it's it's the, the rights for that are sold for ridiculous uh, amounts okay, of right. money. You know, a far greater fact than, than the women's. So even though the, the US men's team didn't qualify for the last World Cup, um, even the, their, their qualifying games were bringing in more money from broadcasting and things of this nature. And also, uh, if you look at ticket prices, uh, you know, the women's games are, 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 the, the, one of the great things about them is, is that they are very affordable. Uh, yeah, yeah, but the okay. downside, of course, you know, that, that is bringing in less money um so it has been rejected um they are however they have ever been granted a right to put in a claim for um sort of ancillary services so the men's team seem to get uh, charter flights uh, and charter planes far more often than the women's team which seems crazy given that the women's team go around yeah. winning things i, I have to say I, i'm i Claire Balding and Gabby Logan are, are friends of mine. I, I like them very much. I'm, I'm rather glad I wasn't in their house this weekend because there will be holes punched in walls. In, in particular, because at least the judge made his decision on an economic case, whereas one of the, and I'm quoting this from the US Soccer Federation, one of their defences was that the men still play a, a higher level of skill based on speed and strength, which is which is dinosaur language. Really. And, and Joe Biden, to his credit, has said that if he wins presidential uh, campaign and I don't think we'd be politically biased to say please God let that happen but Joe Biden has said that um, he will withhold funding from uh, the US Soccer Federation if they don't rectify this this situation which as rightly so as well I mean it, it, it sort of beggars belief that one of the most successful football teams in the world aren't being paid as much as the men in a, in a far less successful team. Um, we do need to move on to, to questions, Kieran, because technically this is the shorter podcast, but in this day and age, short, long doesn't matter, does it, really? Frankly, that's <laughs> it's something you and I have said over many occasions in our life, but for once, you know, time is flexible. Um, our first question comes from Paul Tucker. Uh, it's an interesting question. Uh, Paul Tucker asks you, Kieran, how many clubs have sold their stadium or their training ground to comply with FFP um, and also suggest that it's a slightly difficult route to go down because some clubs, if, if the relationship sours with the owners, Coventry, for example, they could find themselves in a difficult situation, couldn't they? So can you put how many clubs do we know have clubs actually sold their stadium and their training grounds to comply? Well, they, they've never admitted it explicitly, but certainly Derby, Sheffield Wednesday, Aston Villa and Reading have all sold their stadiums to companies set up by the owners. And every time that they've sold the stadia, they've been sold at a substantial profit. Um, then we've got the likes of Brentford, who we were talking about a few days ago. Um, Brentford have sold the land next to the stadium to build a replacement stadium, and they made a profit selling it to the developer, but the developer is then going to sell them back the stadium. So they, they, they've managed to book a £13 million profit on there. Um, I think when it comes to the issue of football clubs and property, um, this is, as you rightly said, in respect of Coventry, this is always something to be concerned about. Yeah, we saw the issues in terms of West Ham, who sold their ground for £38 million to a company, which you know, a couple of days later sold it to another company for £60 million. That company then disappeared. Um, we've, we're seeing presently at South End, you know, a, a few weeks ago, they were granted planning permission to move out of Roots Hall, which is going to be replaced by 500 ohms uh, and uh, move to a place called Fossett's Farm, which will be a new stadium, a 21,000 capacity stadium, which, which is great if, if you've got an ambitious club. Um, but that's going to come with 
800 houses as part of the deal. Now, 400 of those houses are going to be properly affordable I, I've, I've from reading the press. Um, but something needs to be done, in my view, to have some form of protection for Football Stadia because we've seen too often, if you take a look to see what happened at Coventry, We've seen what's happened at Bury. Uh, certainly, my club, Brighton, our, our ground was sold in 1996 for £7 million. And within a few weeks, it was sold for £28 million to become a branch of Toys R Us. So, uh, things like that, that you know, do cause for concern. Is there some protection? We, we did actually get a call from the, the shadow um, minister for sport during the week. You know, God knows why she phoned me. Did we? We did, did we? <laughs> we did. She phoned you, did she? Um, it's, it, the question is not why she phoned you, Kieran. It's how she got through to you. It's a miracle she managed to get through with your call waiting system with South African TV, Guatemalan radio, and whoever else you've sold yourself to. But that's that's interesting. So what did um, what did she have to say to Shadow Minister for Sport? Well, um, Alison said that she... Um... Oh, it's Alison now, Oh, yeah, it? yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm... <laughs> oh, Name-dropping. Okay. Name-dropping. <laughs> it's Alison. All right. Fair enough. She, she, she. Well, to be fair, and, and I'm not partisan when it comes to politics. You know, I, I try to judge each thing. Yes, you are. <laughs> not on this pod, we're not, because Guy doesn't like it. But we, we've, I think everyone's fairly clear where our politics lie. <laughs> Carry on. <laughs> she, she was, uh, she was willing to listen. I think, we, yeah, we, we had a, we had a forty-minute discussion which covered the issue of protecting the game, um, governor, you know, uh, improving in go- uh, governorship. Um, the adoption of the, the German model, um, players' wages, uh, you know, sort of, you know, the, the, effectively the stuff that, that me and you uh, have a chat about in the pub afterwards um, when, when, when we're not in lockdown. Yeah, the, vir- the virtual pub, That's we should right. point out, yeah, in which one of us doesn't drink and we're 50 miles apart. It's a really weird situation. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, 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 it's difficult. I mean, it's one of the, been one of the recurring themes on this pod, uh, and I think I've used this analogy before. It's, it's like Humphrey Bogart. It's like you know, in Casablanca, Sam says to Ilsa, "You know, so many stories start with Mister. I met a man once, and so many stories of football clubs in trouble start with I sold a ground once. I mean, it was the anniversary of Country winning the FA Cup final this weekend. I believe it was on telly yesterday, and then, you know they've gone from that the greatest moment in their career, nineteen eighty seven, to not many decades later, homeless and wandering, and it starts with selling that stadium. It's and as the South End one worries me because they've been trying to f- get planning permission or permission to sell South End for a long, long time, haven't they? And it's it, it's great that affordable housing might be involved. We all know that's again that's a movable feast. The word affordable, but it it would worry me. And, it, and again, a twenty one thousand stadium for a club like South End, these are great ideas on paper, but so often it leads to. And, and also Fawcett's Farm. Roots Hall's a great it is. name for a stadium, isn't it? Fawcett Farm, less so. But anyway, um, question number two comes from uh, XX. Now, uh, I'm I'm against anonymous. You, people can put their names to questions here. We're not the DSSS. That's, that's fine. We won't grass you up. We, we'd rather not have anonymous questions. But fine, if you want to stay XX, that's fine. Um, but XX's question... Uh, and it's, it's 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 I like this question. It's a proper pub football question, which is um, I like XX as it happens. I don't like the fact he keeps his name to himself, but you know, it's a good question. Um, what's your opinion of this? The EFL salary cap of six thousand pound 
that people are talking about. And I like the fact that it's people are talking about it because that encompasses a lot of things. That could be politicians, it could be the EFL, it could be blokes in the pub. But there has been talk of the, an EFL salary cap. Um, a very good fan of our pod, a chap called Mark Cole, is a friend of mine, is forever going on about salary caps and how effective they should be and how they work in other sports. Is this feasible, this idea of a £6,000 salary cap in in the EFL, even in the current climate? Um, I, I think it's got an awful lot of challenges before it could potentially work. Um, there was a report in one of the, the, the papers during the week whereby apparently the EFL had sent out a questionnaire to clubs which said, who's your highest paid player? How much do you pay your manager? Um, how much do you pay your kit man and all things of this nature? I think that the highest paid player in the championship and all that it said in the paper was a southern-based club, um, this player is paid £68,000 a week. Now, as you know, I'm not a man who gambles, but my money's on Alexander Mitrovic of Fulham because okay. he, 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 he came on a big fee from Newcastle. He was banging in the goals last season. They were desperate to keep him. So um, it, w- would he accept staying with Fulham in the championship for £68,000 a week? You know, if, if Fulham got relegated, the first thing he'd be doing, his agent would be saying, well, yeah, we're leaving. Yeah, you know, um, we want to go and play in the Premier League. So it is going to affect those clubs that come down. Um, the average wage in the Premier League, according to my calculations, is around about £16,500 a week. So you know, we're talking about young men who have signed contracts, two, three, four-year contracts. So how, how do you wipe out those contracts? You know, I think there would, be, there would be a lot of lawyers involved, even if it was done over a period of years, effectively to say, well, we'll pay out the outstanding contracts. That's going to mean that, that some clubs are going to be substantially, uh, in terms of substantial advantages over other clubs in the championship. Yeah. And also those clubs that come up from League One will be at a severe disadvantage. If they've got any ambition at all, um, you know, they'd have been paying League One wages. You get to the championship and immediately you've got a ceiling of six grand when you're, you're playing against teams with, with players on 10 times that amount. Well, as you say, I mean, one thing I do know a little about is employment law because of a past life. Um you you couldn't just impose. You, you know, if you've got players on contracts, you're asking you're you're heading for a legal uh, and employment law minefield. If you were suddenly to say to players on a four year contract, oh by the way, that fifteen grand you're getting is being halved next year. But also, I presume as well, um, Premier League clubs who are in danger of relegation are going to find it hard to sign players in the January transfer window as well, aren't they? If if they're offering them thirty grand to, to save them from relegation and they don't save them from relegation. Very much so. Um, you know, the, the Premier League is is part of the reason why it's successful is that the the non big six clubs, you know, your club and mine, we're able to go to Europe and sign players from Germany, Portugal, Spain, Italy, and and pay them substantially more money than they're presently on. And on the back of that, that improves the quality of the Premier League. Now, if if you said to a player in January, um, I'm going to offer you a four and a half year contract. You're starting off, yeah, the average wage at Palace, I I estimated it to be in my last spreadsheet was around about 53 grand um so we'll pay you 53 grand a week um but if we get relegated you're going to lose 90 percent of that we both know what the player's going to say and, it, and it's going to be no yeah. so it, it's going to make it tough not just for the championship clubs but premier league clubs they'll, they'll be very unhappy about this and how can the championship force the premier league clubs when they're signing players on multi-year deals 
to have a relegation clause which insists that they're only paid £6,000 a week. I just don't see how it's enforceable. Now, um, XX uh, has asked a supplementary question, which normally I wouldn't allow with the name situation, but it was my birthday yesterday, so I'm still feeling generous uh, and hung over to the point that I don't care. I'll just read out what's in front of me, frankly. Um, is it, it, now, it's, this is an interesting question because when he... When I read this question, I wondered why it would matter. But he's asked, is it true that Wayne Rooney has been registered as a player coach so that his wages won't count towards profit and sustainability? Do coaches' wages not count towards profit and sustainability? Well, um, if it's if you're an academy coach, if you're part of the academy setup, then then your costs are excluded from the FFP calculations. Um, so... Uh, If he was registered as a coach, uh, and this has historically been a problem, uh, and there's also been a problem at Derby, if you recall that that Tom Ince's mum was uh, was paid (laughs) 700 grand a year as some form of academy scout um, when he signed for the club, and and that had FFP benefits um, at the time. Um, So I think the rules have been tightened up. If you are a player coach, regardless of who you're coaching, 100% of your wages are treated effectively as as player wages. So you you can't use that particular loophole to um, try to circumvent FFP. It's still my absolute favourite story, the Mrs. Int story. That's a story when, when, when strangers to the pod say, what sort of things do you talk about? Yeah, well, what is the state of football money? And I say, well, there's, there's a story about Tom Ince's mum. That's the one again. No, oh, that's funny. Um, now, a question from Aidan Harris. Now, this, I think, is a fascinating question from Aidan Harris. You and I, being old traditionalists, we we talk a lot about the 3pm kickoffs, even though we actually know deep in our hearts that 3pm kickoffs were a way of factory owners exploiting the, the workers who are suddenly given time off by the government. But it, it's that, you know, it's shorthand for, for our generation, 3pm kickoffs, jumpers for goalposts. But Aidan's asked what the economics are behind 3pm kickoffs and what potential revenue would there be if they were to be broadcast live? Um, I Presumably not here, but well, be here or abroad. Well, the the three pm kickoff um, is is sort of a UEFA and an FA ruling, and the the logic behind it is actually to protect the smaller clubs. Mm. Um, if you have uh, Liverpool versus Chelsea or Manchester United versus Manchester United taking place at three pm on a Saturday, um, and you're thinking of going to watch Grimsby pay Morecambe. Um, it could be that a lot of people will just say, uh, well, the weather's shite outside. You know, we, we can watch the football effectively for nothing or we could pay 20 quid, get soaked to the skin um, and come home in a foul, foul mood. So um, it, it's actually to protect attendances at smaller grounds. But what UEFA has done since the, the pandemic started is that that blackout period of time has been uh, abolished um, now, whether it's going to return or not, we don't know. So potentially, um, if it is not returned, then the uh, then the Premier League could go to its its broadcast partners and say, well, well, we think we now have another package of matches to be made available to you. You know, we we can now offer you, um, you know, thirty eight. 3pm Saturday, how much are you willing to pay us for it? So the Premier League clubs are the ones who will potentially benefit from this uh, if it's lifted. Um, the the uh, EFL clubs, would, I think, would be the biggest losers. It, now, the Premier League and the EFL sort of have a gentleman's agreement. The FA are involved here as well. So it could be 
that the Premier League might say, well, we're going to sell this package of matches for you know, 200 million quid and we'll give 10% of it to the EFL um, in order to, to make up for some of the money that they're losing. But I suspect um, you know, the, the Premier League overall would be the big winners in this and, and it wouldn't make up for the, the reduction in attendances at EFL and also National mm. League matches. You know, we, we tend to forget that... you know. There's a lot of football on at 3 p.m. You know, park football, um, national league, you know, the, the lower leagues, and so on. And as you know, we are these football romantics, it it still makes up you know the the heartbeat of small towns and villages and so on. Um, and it's taking more people away from from those particular events. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, I'm Steve Lamarck and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insight, Stuart Dredge on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode, we discuss the very latest goings-on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works, or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. Well, the answer to your question, by the way, given the choice of Liverpool, Chelsea on telly or Grimsby Morecambe, I would go to Grimsby versus Morecambe, frankly. And the worse the weather was, the more I would enjoy it, frankly. Um, but it's interesting, just for, for younger listeners, Mike, the, the, the relationship between the football and broadcasting is so different. When Match of the Day started in 1964... The FA, the Premier, uh, you know, the Football League at the time, was so worried about the effect it might have on on attendances that you weren't allowed to announce what game was going to be on telly that night because they feared that even the idea of a five minute black and white highlights package would prevent people going to to games. So the only way you knew that Palace were on telly or Brighton were on telly was if you saw the cameras when you got to the ground and you were strangely excited. So it's it's incredible how in the course of four decades. Football has gone from being terrified of TV to being virtually run by it. Well, that's right. I mean, t- TV, um, it's free advertising for the game. If you put on a good product, people will want to go and see it. If, if you or I, again, if we, if we had the choice of watching Glastonbury on the telly or going there, despite the fact that you know, there's there's toilets which are resemble bomb sites and in mud and all of the crap that goes on, I, I'd be there in a heartbeat. So, you know, football, uh, the, the television does not stop people wanting to go to live events because those are shared experiences and, and that's part of the wonder of football. That's why it is great. Yeah, now see there, you and I are different. I will watch Glastonbury on telly, I'm not going. Frankly, I'd, when my agent used to say, I've got your book in the festival, say, oh, really, do I have to? And, like, and we had proper, like, performance toilet. There's, don't get me started on that sort of thing. Um, we should go, if Grimsby are playing Morecambe next, so when all this is over, you and I should go and see Grimsby play Morecambe. I think, I think we should, we'll make it a date. Yeah, and if you're listening, Grimsby, I don't expect to be charged for a ticket after all this free publicity. I've got a really good story about the world's biggest prawn cocktail in Grimsby, which is not a sentence I often use. Now, um, <laughs> the, 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 that, that, that's more of a that's more of a Kieran Maguire sentence, that, isn't it, really? Um, 
Now, the next two questions I'm slightly confused by because the, the, you know I have nothing but respect for Guy, our, our producer, nothing but respect. I would respect him even more if he started coughing up some of that fabled money he keeps mentioning. <laughs> uh, seriously, if somebody, really, if somebody wants to do a podcast about the way football finance podcasts are so badly treated financially, I'd be the first one to subscribe and listen to it. Um, but uh, Guy has put these two questions together. I'm not entirely sure why, but... Again, with the hangover situation, I'm just going to read out what's put in front of me, frankly. And if Guy's listening, I'm not paid enough at the moment to mentally work out why questions are the way they are. So, you know, if you want if you want ad-libs, cough up, basically. Now, the first question comes from Alfie Gardner. Hello, Alfie. Now, Alfie Gardner, it's again, I don't know why I preface it by saying it's an interesting question. If it wasn't, we wouldn't ask it. Um, Alfie's question is, if a, if a football club is owned by supporters, a supporters' trust or a group of supporters, is there still the same legal obligation to release full accounts to Companies House? Um, now, he asked this question, and I, again, I need to apologise for this, because he, was, he, he said he was looking for Exeter's accounts casually, which I don't think he would have done before listening to this podcast. So you, you're an evil man. You've, you've lured all sorts of people into... Um, <laughs> but it's, it's an interesting... The reason I like the question is because I... In a, in a sort of naive, romantic sort of way, I, I assume that if a club was owned by fans, it would want to be more open and honest about its accounts anyway, but it seems not in this case. Um, no, is a simple answer. I mean, all all companies have to show their accounts to all shareholders. So w- one thing you would expect with a fan-owned club is that there would be more shareholders, so they will get to see yeah, them. Right. Then we've got the issue of company's house now company's house makes things available to the whole of the population um and and i can't remember who did it but it used they used to charge you for it and then i don't know whether it was gordon brown i don't know whether it was a success i don't care who it was but god bless whoever did it they they made it free access yeah because we are the people you know this is our Mm. country we should have free access to information um so um if you, as, as we've had this discussion before, if you're below a certain size, you only have to go and show very, very cut down accounts. You can't work out the income. You can't work out the wages. You can't really work out the profit. All of the really geeky stuff that, that gets me uh, you know, foaming at the mouth uh, on my spreadsheet. So um, Exeter City Football Club decided that they were not going to go down that route. There's, there's nothing to stop a club from showing everything, from being completely transparent. They did stick up a one-page summary on their on their website. So we, I've, I've got a couple of figures, but not as much as I would, I would really like. Um, and I can't really understand the logic. You know, Exeter City... By being a fan-owned club, I'm greatly in favour of that. You know, I think it, it does it does bring it closer to the community. Well, you can bring it even more closer just by being completely transparent. Um, I, we had this discussion with uh, Gary Sweet off off air um, when uh, you know, Gary is the Luton chief executive, and Luton have historically always shown these cut down accounts. His view that you know for a club like Luton, which is which is you know punching above its weight in certain respects. Um, it gives them a small advantage by not showing this information to um, competitors, and that's why they've done it. In my experience, and, and I've taught quite a few football agents, is is that they are the biggest gossips I've ever met. <laughs> um, so if if I if I say you know well what do you think about such and such a transaction or uh, what about the wages of this and that club one of them will inevitably come up to me after the after the class after the lecture whatever it's going to be and say 
have a look at this and, you know, and show me a WhatsApp trail. They know every single transaction going. So my view would be that if I'm a club owner, I just get hold of one of the agents and say, you know, what's happening at Barnsley? What's happening at Morecambe? You know, it's not public, but you know, there is an awful lot of information out there, except it's not in the public domain. Um, I'm firmly of the belief that the biggest investors in football are the fans. Yeah. And therefore, as investors, we deserve pure, tra- full transparency. That's not illegal. Again, that's that's a bloke in the pub perspective. Yeah. Um and this was one of the other issues I raised with with my new best friend Alison, shadow shadow minister for sports, um, the other day. We'll save that for another pod, shall we, Kieran? Um, I, I I like the fact that Exeter City are fan owned. I also like the fact that they have an in-house club poet. I, I like oh, wow. it. They, they do, but I haven't been able to tell my dad about that yet because, as far as my dad was concerned, football went when goalkeepers started wearing gloves. For him, that was, I remember it was like, with Peter Bonetti wearing his garden, that was it. As far as he was concerned, the game's gone. If I tell him there's a football club with a poet, a bard, they call him the bard of Exorcity. I mean, you know, Dad, is Exorcity got that? He would, given the current situation, he's, he's stressed enough as it is. Now, we've got a question from uh, Stuart Barnett uh, and Guy here, for some reason, has put brackets Barney on Twitter. So we've gone from anonymous questions to somebody with two names now. I don't know. I don't know which one we're supposed to refer to. Stuart Barnett is Barney on Twitter. I imagine there's a lot of Barneys. Um, Stuart, it's a simple, direct question on a specific subject that we've spoken about quite a lot on this pod, which is the Glazers. Now, Stuart says, given the Glazers' massive loans against Man United, they took out these massive loans basically to, to take the club over and took the loans out against the name of Man United. If If COVID causes the huge collapse, which some people are... Are predicting it will do the huge financial collapse. Will that affect the Glazers' finances, the loans, and therefore the finances of Manchester United? Um, it, it shouldn't, and and the reasons for that is that um, Ed Woodward, who's effectively negotiated these loans, he's uh, he's arranged interest only loans. So, so Manchester United actually presently have two loans. One's for. $425 million, which is due to be repaid in 2027. And the other is for $225 million, which is due to be repaid in 2029. Now, they're only paying interest of around about 2% on one and 3.8% on the other. Um, so there's no pressure on United to repay the capital. And, and as you know, if you think about when we normally have a mortgage, we're normally paying interest and capital together. So those sums could have been quite big. But because they are interest-only loans, and what I fully expect to happen in four or five years' time is the banks will either approach United or United will approach the banks and say, look, we've been paying the interest. We've never missed a payment to date. Um, fancy renewing those loans and just pushing them down down the down the road for another 10 years. Because that's what's happened at Spurs. Spurs right. borrowed £637 million, which was due for repayment in 2022, and next, Daniel Levy's rescheduled it for for 2039 at 2.5% interest. Oh, wow. What is um, what is the two, what is, that's a lot of, What's 2.5% interest on £637 million, then? That's uh, £16.6 million. Is it? Yeah. Did you just work that out off the top of your head? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's rough, roughly there. I'm, I'm, I might be a decimal place wrong, but it's, yeah, it's about that. Well, 
Really? I'm, well, I mean, to be fair, you could have picked any figure and I'd have gone, really? But that, that's, you are Rain Man, aren't you? That's I am a, Rain Man. So that, just explain that to me then, because I find that interesting, because a lot of people here will be paying mortgages or mortgage payments are due, or they've got to pay the outstanding sum, etc. So banks make more money out of continually getting interest than they would do if the, the loan was repaid. I mean, are there circumstances in which a bank would say, no, actually, we, we want the full amount repaid, or is that not how big business or finance at that level works. No, in 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 the big corporate world, they're just looking for regular money coming in because if you repay the the capital to the bank, then they've got to go and find another customer. So they've got to do more credit checks. You know, they they might not get the same rate of interest if interest rates in, in have fallen in that period. Um, what what you're looking for is is repeat money. If men, if right. if Spurs are giving sixteen million pounds a year every year on the button. Well, that's just easy money from the bank's point of view. Why, why go to the hassle of going to have to go and find another customer, having to go through the legal process, the costs involved from the bank's point of view, when you've, you've got Spurs saying, well, extend the loan for another 10 years. The bank's thinking, well, you know, £16 million times 10, that's another £160 million quid for us. Happy days. Whoa, whoa, how'd you work that out? Um, this, this is not... I, th- I may have asked you this before, but we're, we're not talking about one bank here, are they? Spurs aren't in to, to just one bank. Presumably this is spread out around several banks because otherwise it's too much of a risk here, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. there's there's two or three. They're mainly US banks involved, but uh, yes, right, it, yeah. it is effectively a consortium. Right, we have two questions to go, and I'm aware that we, we are going over a little bit longer than we normally do on a Monday, but I think our, our listeners are intelligent enough to, to cope, aren't they, with a little bit of spread? Um, plus... Be perfectly honest with this hangover. I'm not speeding up. Um, a question from Barry Nicholl. You've never had a hangover. I can't. But there again, you've never had the joy of waking up in a skip at five o'clock in the morning. So, well, you probably have actually in Moscow all the time. But yeah, right. Let's let's backtrack on that. Um, uh, a question from Barry Nicholl. Now, this is one of those questions. No disrespect, Barry, because it turns out to be a good question. But it's one of those questions when you first read it, you think. That's that doesn't make any sense. But then actually you think about it a little bit more, and it does. And Barry's question says, with with so many clubs losing money, not just now but beforehand, where do transfer fees fit in comparison to TV revenue sponsorship? So how much of a club's annual income would be made up of transfer fees? And obviously it's an average because you know, teams like Liverpool spend a lot more than teams like Brighton or Palace. Right. If if we take a look at the Premier League, the total income for all 20 Premier League clubs in 2019 was around about £5.1 billion. But on top of that, they had player sales of 524. So we're talking roughly 10% additional income came in through the transfer market. Not to be sniffed at, but not, not a critical amount. If we then drop down into the championship, the championship club's total income we're still waiting for a couple of clubs to to update their figures, which, as you know, that annoys me. But uh, seven hundred ninety eight million pounds, but uh, player sales two hundred and seventy nine. So that's roughly one third of additional income coming in from player sales. So it's far more significant in the championship. Um, and, and my concern is that the the transfer market is going to collapse um, over the course of the summer because uh, to whom are championship players or sorry to who are championship clubs selling their players to it's going to be the lower half clubs in the premier league in the main yeah and those clubs they don't have any money because you know they're not getting match day sales um we, we yeah with the 
these some of the overseas broadcasters are reluctant to pay. We've got West Ham's sleeve sponsor going bust. So those clubs in the bottom half of the Premier League have got less money. They will be looking to buy from the Championship, not willing to offer as much as before. Or if the Championship turned, club turns around and says, well, I want £15 million, pounds. I'm not willing to take a penny less, I can guarantee you there's a half-decent player playing in Spain who they can could have bought for €20 million Euros six months ago, and that club will be desperate and they'll sell it for eight. So, you know, the prices are going to be driven down. So that additional money which comes into the championship, that extra third, is likely to significantly fall. You said sleeve sponsor there, didn't you? Not sleeve sponsor. <laughs> yes, I did say sleeve sponsor. Yes. Uh, just, cause just for a moment, I thought there's a lot of things I wouldn't put past West Ham. But the spon- who, who were the sleeve sponsor that's gone bust? I didn't it, know it's this, some but... sort of crypto bank you know one of those weirdy weirdy things which uh oh, right. yeah not not proper not 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 bothered then um I, sh- I should apologize to barry the first part of his question was eminently sensible it's the second part of his question which which i thought made less sense but, but i it, it, having thought about it i want to get your view on this um the second part of barry's question he said in the in the current situation is there an argument for scrapping transfer fees altogether, for, for forget the bum fight about how much a particular player is worth, just let agents and players decide where they go on the basis of the deal that they're offered financially in terms of wages, etc. That, that, again, that's as I say, when I first read that, I thought, no, that's nonsense. But actually, to me, with no accounting or financial credibility, it, it has a certain appeal to it. Um, a- a- appeal to who, though? Because... What that would mean is that you could have a club like Liverpool or Chelsea or one of the Manchester clubs. They could pick up, um, you know, forty or fifty kids from lower league clubs for nothing. Uh, right, stick okay. stick them in their B team. Work out which ones are good, which ones are not. They'd still be paid a bit more than the uh, the, the the club which had developed them. This would really hit lower league clubs. You know, if we go back to Exeter, um, you know, Exeter lost seven hundred grand in their accounts from the numbers that I did see, but they also sold a player for seven hundred and fifty grand. You know, their losses would have doubled had it not been right. for player sales. You, you talk to lower league um, owners, and one of the things that they're always hopeful for is you know they're panning for gold. They've got a good youth prospect, and even if they just sell him for one million or one and a half million, whatever it's going to be, that makes a huge difference to their finances for the next three years. So, transfer fees, and certainly when I talk to people in the states, you know they they see this that they go really anti this because you know you think about the US's history of slavery, and that they they see a transfer fee effectively as being a slave fee, um, but it does protect the lower league clubs. And also, it helps those mid-tier clubs. Um, Leicester City have taken the £80 million from the sale of Harry Maguire, and they've used that to build new training facilities. So it is effectively, it's the rich giving money to the poor a lot of the time. Manchester United are a buying club rather than a selling club. Manchester United don't need more money. So if, if we scrap transfer fees, they'd be better off financially because they'd be paying out less. Now, I've just realised, looking at my notes... Um which, of course, are in inverted commas. The word notes, of course, in inverted commas. Um, I was subconsciously, obviously, so cross about Kieran, our producer, putting two unlinked questions together that I forgot to ask the second of the two unlinked questions. So I, I asked Alfie Gardner's question about uh, the football supporters' uh, trusts. Um, I didn't ask Liam Blaney's question. Um, uh, and Liam's question, now you'll probably be offended by this mere concept, but Liam's asked, can, can the casual reader 
of a club financial statement, a casual reader. Can you imagine that, Kieran? Just somebody picking it up, <laughs> maybe skimming through it, putting it down again. Oh, that's hot. Uh, can the casual reader, <laughs> can the casual reader of a club financial statement calculate actual um, FFP loss, seeing as the bottom line incorporates exempt expenditure? And I, uh, that was one of the questions earlier that I lost. It, it, it's a very good question. I'm su- I'm sure it is because by the look on your face. But it's it's you know can well not me. I'm way below the casual reader, but. Can somebody like Liam interpret these things and, and work out the FFP loss just from what we're shown? We, we can get a ballpark figure. Um, the, the way that financial fair play works is that you start off with, with your losses and then you say included in those losses are certain things which we are going to now make exempt. So women's football, promotion bonuses, community schemes, um, academy schemes, you know, things which are good causes. Um, and infrastructure costs as well. So, so if if you take a look at Aston Villa, Aston Villa made um, 179 million pounds worth of losses in the three years to the 30th of June 2019. Now, the FFP loss is is 39 million. So initially thinking, well, golly, gumdrops, uh, you know, they're they're going to go get an absolute spanking here. Um, but by the time they'd taken away that they sold themselves their stadium, they sold H- uh, some land for HS2, they were putting through incredibly... They've, they've invested huge amounts in their academy scheme, according to the accountants. Um, that that £179 million worth of loss, I recalculated as 18 from an FFP perspective. So it can be done roughly... Um, you have to you have to look in the in the in the small print of the accounts, and you've got to make one or two judgment calls. But yes, it, it you, you can get a rough and ready figure. Right, I'm going to overlook the fact you said golly gumdrops, uh, and move on to the last question. You, you're not a man, a man with your your previous background shouldn't be saying golly gumdrops, really, unless I can take from that that um, Mrs. McGuire's just turned back. She's come home, is she? The Baroness is that, is that what? Has, okay, yes. fair enough. Um, the final question. Now, I'm, a slight, I'm slightly nervous about um, this question. Not the question so much, Kieran, as the name. Now, you and I share an Anglo-Irish background. All right? um, you and I know that people in our family. How is your mum in Mayo? Nice to speak to you again, Mrs. Maguire. Uh, are listening to this. So this this question. Co- I've, I've not sworn. No, you I? haven't sworn. That's what golly gumdrops is. Yeah. Um, this question is from that. My, my, my fear about this is because my Irish family are always picking me up. I think sometimes they're winding me up. They're just, but they're picking me up on pronunciations. But I, I'm confident with the Sean part of this. But the, the surname is M- <laughs> <laughs> the surname is M C G O E Y. Now I'm going to go for Sean McGoey, right? But it could be McGoy, it could be McGee, it could be MacArthur. I don't know. It could be, it could be her. So I apologize, Sean. I apologise. I really do apologise, but my family have got me paranoid about Irish pronunciations. But Sean's question is is a good one, and Sean starts with a plaintive little sentence. He says, "This question may seem stupid." Now, Sean, trust me, it it doesn't. It's something that Kieran has tried to explain to me off air several times. I still can't fully grasp it. But Sean's question is, and it and it it's it's very pertinent. How would how would voiding the season, as, as some clubs have suggested, that we end the season now it's void, how would that help an EFL club financially? Players and staff are furloughed or redundant. What other costs are they incurring that they wouldn't if the season was, was voided? Well, I think we've got to look at two issues. There's, there's income and there's costs. If the if the season is voided, they're not going to get any match day income, but they're not going to get any matches are played. 
if we void the the matches, we really need to focus on the cost base. It means that the clubs do not have to re-employ the players. So uh, therefore, yeah. Right. Yep, so yep. if you think about it, it's, it's going to be three weeks of pre-season training to get them back into being match fit. Yeah. And then they've got to fit in all the matches. So they're going to have to go and pay the players but they're also going to go and pay the groundsmen. They're also going to have to go and pay some of the backroom staff. They're also going to have to pay for electricity for the matches. So you're going to substantially increase your costs. The only extra income you're potentially going to get in is if you start streaming matches. And I don't know whether you've heard of this iFollow service um, that the EFL have. Um, It's... It's it's okay. It's it's one camera per per stadium, so it's it's not the the type of broadcast quality that you'd necessarily get at a Premier League match or when Sky or BT are going there. But it, you know, it's it, it keeps you occupied. It's it's the stuff that you tend to see on the highlights packages for the EFL. You know, and I watch it's those. Sure, and you sure. watch those yeah, because yeah. It, it's, it's football. It's football yeah. You know, so yeah. there is the opportunity for them to make a little bit of money, but the the costs of employing everybody again when they're not getting the government to cover this two and a half thousand pounds a month 80 percent and so on um that those costs would be far in excess of any extra money coming in so that's why we've seen the likes of of andy holt um at at accrington um and i think there was a guy from bristol rovers and some other clubs being very forthright for saying if, if, if we're going to be forced to play matches, well, what we might do is um, I'm going to keep the players furloughed and I'm going to go and pay my youth team instead yeah. because I, yeah. can, I can pay them buttons. And, and then, then your sporting integrity disappears out the window. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Sean, I hope that answers your questions. I can't stress enough to people who are sending us questions. Um, it might seem an idiotic question to you. It won't to me. If you've got anything you want to ask us, don't worry that you think it's such a simple question. Um, if you don't think it's a simple question, it probably because it isn't. And Kieran's a very good teacher. He will explain. And also, you don't see his eyebrows going up and down when I read the questions out. It's only me that sees that, so don't worry about that. And if you have questions for us, it's questions at priceoffootball.com. Uh, the Price of Football is adaptive production. Uh, that's Guy, have pay, won't pay, kilty. Um <laughs> And we will see you on Thursday. So um, stay safe. And hopefully, as we said right at the start of the pod, football is on its way back in some way, shape or form. Stay safe, folks. Look after yourselves. The price of football. Bye-bye now. Ice on football.